All right. Well, today we're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, and if you have your Bibles and you like to follow along, we're going to be starting uh, at chapter 16, so we're beginning a new chapter today. Uh, before we get into that, I want to ask you a question. A lot of you are in management or you've been in charge of things before, and have you ever been in charge of something that you really put a lot of your effort into, a lot of your time into, a lot of your vision into, and then you had to leave it for someone else to take over because either a job sitch or you were moving or you were put into a different project. I've had to do that a couple times in my life, and, and uh, the two times that stick out the most, one might be kind of surprising because it really isn't anything that's all that earth-shattering. When I was uh, in the Peace Corps, I started a rabbit project uh, in, this, in this village that I was living in and uh, actually in the school that I was teaching in because uh, the people really only ate chicken and sheep. Sheep were only on uh, certain holidays, and they would only eat their cows when one of them died. It was like, you know, it was, it was, their wealth was in their cows, and so uh, they only ate their cows should one of them have, have died. So I thought rabbits would be a good supplement because it was, you know, it's food, and also they have the fur. We lived in a high uh, area where people lived above the snow line during the wintertime. So I thought it would be good. And I spent a lot of time trying to get these rabbits. And I've told you stories about these rabbits. I also kind of traumatized some of you, apparently, with some of the stories about the rabbits. And, uh, and, uh, but I found when I had to hand it over, uh, I still wonder to this day, did anyone ever pick up the project and feed the rabbits? I, I, I do. I wonder to this day, did anyone remember to feed the rabbits? And uh, the other time I, I really kind of was in this position of having to hand something over that I'd put a lot into was when we came to Germany. Uh, I came from Oregon, my wife, my family. We all came from this church that we had spent in, uh, time in in Oregon, 14 years. It was the first church that I pastored out of seminary. So there was a, uh, there was a special kind of bond there because it was that first place of kind of learning about, about how to be a pastor. Seminary only prepares you to think you're ready to be a pastor. Uh, then you go, and then you realize you, know, you don't know anything. But, uh, but, you know, we spent a lot of time in that community, 14 years. Our kids, that was their hometown. Uh, I didn't really grow up with a hometown, so I wanted the kids to have that sense. And then, uh, then coming here, you take this church that you'd, I'd spent my, my vision in, my energy in, my life in, and you just hand it over to others and and hope for the best. And sometimes that can be intimidating. You know, sometimes you feel like when you're handing something over to someone else, you wonder if they're going to take as good care of it as you're going to take, as you took of it. Are they going to love it the same way you loved it? Are they going to even follow the same vision that you had? And part of giving up some of this is realizing that people are going to take things their own direction. But the other thing you often kind of are concerned about sometimes is the competency of those who are taking over. And this is kind of a, a prideful thing, maybe, on my part. But you wonder, you know, are these folks capable of doing this? And as we look at chapters uh, 14 and 15 in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus kind of go through a difficult period in his life. And I think sometimes we have a hard time understanding that Jesus could have bad days. I think we often think of Jesus as, as kind of being above it all, sort of, sort of transcendent to all the negativity that could be around him. But the truth is, when you read the Bible and you read it carefully, you see that Jesus dealt with, with stress and negative stress all the time. He had people around him who were criticizing him. He had people around him trying to kill him. He had folks questioning him all the time, including people who were quite close to him, including his own brothers. 
And then he had these disciples, these disciples who sometimes really seemed to, to not be a bright light for the future. And there were times, you know, Jesus, uh, after John the Baptist died, and he goes to, to have some time alone, and he really can't, and, and, uh, and he's with the disciples, and they're asking, they, they start this habit of asking him to explain everything he says, until Jesus gets to the point where he says to them, are you so dull? Are you so thick that you can't understand what it is I'm trying to say? And then we saw, saw a few weeks ago, or he went into this, this situation where this woman asked him to, to help his, uh, her daughter, who had been demon-possessed. And you remember Jesus had a, a, an answer to her which seemed very much out of character, which we explained later, but it still was pretty harsh when he says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And so today where we pick up in the Gospel of Matthew, we see another one of these places where Jesus seems to be a little bit tired of the folks who are being willfully ignorant as to who he is. And those are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They seem to be willfully ignorant, like they're trying to be ignorant. And he's also a little bit fed up with his disciples just being dense. And he says as much. So let's read. The scripture says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, first of all, to start off with, the Pharisees and the Sadducees actually working together is kind of rare. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two different factions within Judaism that didn't like each other. The Pharisees saw the Sadducees as being kind of stuck up and in the temple and, and collaborators with the Romans. And the Sadducees saw the Pharisees as being a, kind of a bunch of hillbillies, kind of, kind of the, the redneck Jews of the time, just kind of out among the people. And so, you know, you had this kind of upper class and, who looked down on the Pharisees and the Pharisees. You know how sometimes people who are middle to lower class kind of look down on the upper class? And that's kind of their, their dynamic. They really didn't particularly like each other. But they had one thing in common, is that they both hated Jesus. Because Jesus threatened both their power. He, th he threatened the temple power of the Sadducees, and he threatened the people power of the Pharisees. So they decided to both come, and they asked him for this sign from heaven. And it's interesting that at this point in Jesus' ministry, there had been lots of signs given. You know, they could have observed the fact that he just fed 5, 000, over 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread. Then he fed over 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread. By this time in his ministry, Jesus healed probably thousands of people, cast out demons. He's even raised a little girl from the dead. But apparently these weren't signs enough for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they say they want a sign from heaven. And, and it's kind of, it's not clear what they're expecting to see. This is kind of a vague request. It sounds like it's specific, give us a sign from heaven. But it's vague. It's like me telling you I come from the Pacific Northwest of the United States. That sounds specific the Pacific Northwest of the United States. But that's an area that's two and a half times the size of Germany. So it's not very specific, really. It sounds like it is. So what does it mean? What do you want from a sign from heaven? Do you want lightning to spell Jesus is Lord across the skies? Do you want an angel to come down? Do you want God to part the curtains of reality and say, hey, this is a deal? Which has already kind of happened, actually. You know, Zechariah had a vision about John the Baptist being born. Mary and Joseph had visions of angels about Jesus. This whole thing has kind of happened. When Jesus was baptized, the voice from heaven was heard, This is my son, with whom I'm well pleased. What more do you need? And so Jesus 
Jesus seizes on this poorly thought out request and says this. Jesus replied, he replied, when evening comes, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it is stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. So Jesus' response is really to kind of dismiss the Pharisees and the Sadducees by saying this, you're not able to see the signs that are right in front of you. These signs are right in front of you. You can interpret the sky and all that, but you can't see the reality of who I am right in front of you. So I'm not going to give you a sign from the heavens. I'm going to give you a sign from the ocean. You want a sign from above? I'm going to give you a sign from below. And the sign from below is the sign of Jonah. And then he doesn't explain it, just like Jesus usually does. He just doesn't explain it and walks away. And this is actually the last time that Jesus deals with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Galilee. He'll later deal with them in Jerusalem. But this is the last time he deals with them near his home. And the sign of Jonah is an interesting question. Because what is the sign of Jonah? Well, a lot of us know, kind of, you can kind of make immediate connection that Part of the sign of Jonah is the three days in the whale, in the place of darkness and despair, where Jonah felt he was in that place of death, is kind of equated to the three days in the tomb, in the place of darkness, and where Jesus goes into to a spiritual journey into places that we can't even get our heads around. The scripture only alludes to it briefly in some spots. But the other sign that's the sign of Jonah, which I think is often overlooked, is that when Jonah spoke, he spoke to Gentiles. He spoke to the Ninevites. He spoke to people that, that had not embraced the God of Israel. And yet, when he spoke to the people of Nineveh, much to Jonah's dismay, actually, they repented. They heard what he said, and they repented. And I think the kind of the funny part of Jonah is that really Jonah did not want the people of Nineveh to repent. He wanted them to reject his message so that the wrath of God would fall on them. But they didn't. They accepted it. And kind of in that same way, the early church, the message of Christ, the message of salvation, while it starts out primarily among the Jews, it, immediately, it quite soon goes into the non-Jews. And the church, as we are evidenced today, was made up mostly of non-Jewish people, of Gentiles who accepted that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah, which is the irony that is found all the way through the, the Old Testament into the New Testament that we even t spoke of today, the prophets even saw this coming, that the, that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people and embraced by those who were not considered a people of God, which is anyone who comes from a non-Jewish background. And so Jesus, Jesus uh, has this concern for them, and then he says, all right, you know, whatever. He kind of leaves them behind, and he gets in the boat, and it says they went across the lake, and the disciples forgot to take bread. <laughs> when, you read, when you read, you know, this, this is following the story, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. You would think that the issue of bread would have been worked out with the disciples. Right? That they would have sat around and said, okay, listen, this has happened to us twice now, where we don't have enough bread, you know, for ourselves. Because you know those stories, he feeds them with five loaves, and then the one he feeds them with seven loaves. So it's really not even enough for the disciples. They're having this issue with food, and yet one of these guys forgets to bring the bread. I mean, how dumb do you have to be? 
And so they, so they forget to take bread. And Jesus, though, Jesus isn't really concerned about bread because, you know, Jesus knows what he can do here. But he takes the opportunity to use it as a teaching moment because his mind are still, is still on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. His mind is still on these religious leaders and what they're teaching the people. And basically what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are teaching the people are leading to the people rejecting their own Messiah. So Jesus says to him, be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, Jesus did this often. He would take, uh, a situation was going on, and he would turn it into a parable. He saw a farmer in the field. He would talk about the word of God. as like the seed being scattered by the farmer. You know, he would see things happening, and he would relate it to folks. So he had just had this discussion with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then his disciples forget to bring bread, and he uses that to say, hey, be careful. Be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the, and the disciples take this parable, this little tiny parable of Jesus, and we read this. They discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Now look at that carefully. Look at that verse carefully. They discussed this among themselves. They sat down and said, okay, let's, one, you know, our collective brain is better than just one of our brains. So let's discuss this and figure out what this little parable means. Because the last time they had asked Jesus to explain this parable to us, Jesus was kind of fed up. He says, are you so dull? That's what he said. Come on. This is obvious. Do you need me to explain everything to you? So this time, instead of going to Jesus and saying, explain this to us, they discuss it. And this is the brilliant conclusion that their collective mind comes up with. It is, he's upset because we didn't bring any bread. And Jesus is not impressed with their outcome. And he says this, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you'd gathered? Guys, you not only saw these miracles, you participated in these miracles. How is it that you don't understand that I'm not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then he doesn't explain it any further than that. He still expects them to use their heads. And it says, and then they understood. He was not telling them to be on guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think it's understandable sometimes to, 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 to sympathize with Jesus because these are the guys that are going to have to carry on the legacy of everything he is about. The very word of God becoming flesh, emptying himself of his glory, Dwelling among them, dwelling among us as human beings, teaching, preaching, preparing people to understand the kingdom of God. Knowing he's going to go to the cross where he will die as a substitution for the sins of humanity. He will be buried in the tomb, raised to life on the third day. And will ascend into heaven and it's up to these disciples to carry on this story. I don't know about you but I wouldn't be so confident in these disciples at this point. I think you see this a little bit in Jesus. Are you still don't, you still don't understand. These guys have to get it at some point. 
and they will, thanks to the Holy Spirit coming along. But at this point, I mean, Jesus is like, wow. I got the Pharisees and the Sadducees on one side, misteaching all the people about who I am so the people don't accept who I am. And I've got my disciples who, wow, it really appears someone dropped them on their head when they were children because these guys don't get anything. And of course, Jesus' main concern was not for bread. But it was for the teachings that had painted this false picture of who the Messiah was going to be. And these teachings were so ingrained, not just in the people, not just in the Pharisees, not just in the Sadducees, but these were teachings that were ingrained into the disciples too. And that's part of what Jesus is trying to deal with with his own disciples, is that they had just ingrained into them some understandings about God which were not true. And like yeast in the bread can't be distinguished once it gets worked into the bread and the bread is baked, the effect is still there. The effect of the yeast is still obvious. And these false teachings and misrepresentations of who the nation of Israel was supposed to be and who God was and who their Messiah was, which are clearly laid out in the Old Testament but have been conveniently set aside, for their own sense of power, their own sense of wealth, their own sense of being in control. Because those truths have been set aside, the people were giving a falseness. They were giving a false expectation. And you know what? We're not that different. We all have things that we've learned. We all have things we've learned, either from a specific lesson or just we absorbed it over time. I had a seminary professor, he used to ask us, uh, how to snap our fingers. And most of us would snap our fingers like this. Occasionally, we'd have some people from different cultures that would, that would do it in a different way. Like, I can't really do it, but some folks from West Africa, they would just kind of hold this finger loose and, and snap it against the rest of their hand. And then he would say, do you remember being taught how to do that? Do you remember being taught that this is the way you should snap your fingers or this is the way you should snap your fingers? Do you remember being taught? No, but you know. How do you know? Because you just kind of absorb some things that are around your culture as you grow up. You know, and some of those things are good. I mean, it doesn't really matter how you snap your fingers. Snapping your fingers is not a salvation issue. You know, so some of the things are good. Some of the things are indifferent. Some of the things are bad. You know, there's a lot of things that are just kind of absorbed by people around them that can be, that can be good and can be bad. And this happens with Christianity. There are some things that we, you may have been taught over your lifetime and over your years about God which simply aren't true. Some of you know that my, my dad passed away this last week and we're going to be heading over to the U.S. tomorrow. So uh, uh, Mitch Egger is going to be preaching next Sunday. But my dad, God bless him, who is a believer, and uh, there's not a whole lot of grief in his death because it was a long time coming. He lived a lot longer than we were expecting him to live. But he believed for the longest time that the, that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, was in the Bible. And he would insist on that. Well, you know, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. And that's nowhere found in the Bible. Nowhere. Uh, I think Benjamin Franklin is credited for saying that, not the Bible. You know, but, but he just kind of grew up, that's, that's, oh, it has the word God in it, and it has help. So God helps those who help themselves. Sounds like it should be a proverb. But it's not. 
He just kind of grew up absorbing this, that this is, this is the way it was. Some people grow up with different thoughts about races because it just kind of absorbs it. My grandmother, my grandfather were, were of an age that, you know, they didn't really think about the fact that they had racial issues, but they definitely had racial issues because they just absorbed these things as their lifetime in their life and even in the church. Many people, even though Christianity will often say it's, you know, it's by grace you're saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast, they will still think that Christianity is a works-based faith. And you will have some Christian branches teach essentially it's a works-based faith. They'll change the grace of God into something that only comes through certain avenues or by a certain person instead of being what the Bible describes as grace. And that you have to perform certain works in order for grace to flow which is a total oxymoron. Grace is a gift given freely without merit, and yet some people can turn that around and say, in order to get the gift that flows freely without merit, you have to do this work. That makes no sense. But you see this in a lot of forms of Christianity, and especially folks that grew up. If you grew up with a heavily traditional, heavily ritualized uh, faith that has a lot of teachings that go outside the Bible attached to it, those are a lot of things that you learned and you just think are normal and should be, they're not in the Bible. And a lot of times what we think we know, we don't know. And a lot of times we hold teachings in our heart that we don't even realize that we hold until they get challenged or pressed somehow, then we realize it. And like the Pharisees, man, people, they want signs from God. They want a sign from God to prove that he is true. And you know what? One of the fascinating things about Matthew, we'll get into it, is that it talks about after Jesus was, was crucified and he died, the tombs around Jerusalem broke open and like 500 people rose from the grave. And yet apparently, even though those stories are, can still be found a distant echo outside of the Bible in some extra-biblical writings and, and, uh, and, in, and stories that are told, that huge sign just disappeared. Because as human beings, it doesn't matter how big a sign we could have. We are very in the moment. And if in that moment we feel like we're in a crisis, or if in that moment we feel like God is not answering us, or if in that moment we have doubt, then very often we just kind of, our whole life just gets all thrown up in the air. God could take the roof off this place. His face would show to us and speak to us. Put the roof back on, and I guarantee you that in 10 years we'd be talking about the few of us, some of us actually had walked away from faith. And be like, what? How is that possible? As human beings. And so the Pharisees wanted a sign. And they wanted this sign from heaven. And Jesus said they're going to get the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah is really the sign of resurrection. And the empty tomb brothers and sisters, is the sign of our faith. The resurrection is the sign. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the conqueror over sin and death, then Christianity has nothing else to offer you when it comes to salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. And if we remove from the equation the sign of the cross and the resurrection, then there really is nothing else that can be given to you. What more can God do? 
than to come to us, to empty himself of his glory, to condescend himself to us, to die on the cross for us, and then to rise again from the grave to prove his victory over sin and death. If that's not enough of a sign, then what is? And today when people say, I just need a sign from God, I just need a sign from God, the answer to that is you have a sign from God. We live in this privileged place where we have the Bible, we have 2,000 years of Christian history, we have most of what it means to be saved as theology worked out among the different denominations. We, we pretty much agree that Jesus is the way. You have everything given to you, and yet as human beings, we still want our own special sign. Lord, give me the sign for Jeff. The sign for everyone else, well, that's good for them, but what about the sign for me? And that's our selfishness, right? We want me. Lord, what about me? And I think Jesus would tell, tell those of us who are saying, I want a sign to prove that my faith is real. He would say the same thing to us as he said to the Pharisees. I gave you the sign of Jonah. I was three days in a tomb. I rose again. I preached salvation and hope to the world. And you have heard of me 2,000 years after the fact because of the miracle of the church. And the miracle of the church is that the church has survived the vileness of humanity. And I don't say that with any kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek or humor. You read church history, the miracle of the church is the church has survived humanity. And it has come out with truth after all the ways that human beings have tried to use and abuse the church. So the fact that you even hear the Word of God, the fact that you have the Bible, the fact that you know the story of the resurrection is the sign. So believe it. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now it's true. Sometimes God does. God is very loving, very gracious. He's very much like a parent that looks at a child with their little, you know, chubby little fists on their hips and saying, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. And he's like, all right, well, let's we'll work on this. We'll get this figured out. And very often he gives us a sign, a personal sign. And some of you have had stories of personal signs. But I also know that you've had story, when you've had these personal signs, you've still, in spite of those personal signs, have times of doubt, don't you? Because why? You're a human being, and you're very much in the now. And the sign from 5, 10, 15 years ago begins to fade when you're in the crisis of today. That's why signs don't really work. What works is faith. What works is belief. Do you believe that God raised, Jesus rose from the dead after three days? Do you believe that he ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God? Do you believe that his Holy Spirit has been available to you simply by asking because God wants you to be in relationship? He doesn't want to make it hard for you to be in relationship with him. He wants you to be in relationship with him. Do you believe the Holy Spirit comes when you invite the Spirit into your life, when you submit your life to God, when you die to self? If the answer is yes, then live that, and that's your sign. And that's all the sign you need. You will probably get more because God is gracious, but that's really all you need. And sometimes people will, will read the Bible, and they'll say, well, I've read the Bible again and again and again, and I'm just not finding something that they're looking for, or they, they're still stuck in a belief system that is that it's wrong, that, that's just and they're living a falsehood because they, they've absorbed this teaching somehow about their faith. You know, one of, the fa one of the big ones is, you know, God is kind of out to get me. 
People, people will, will have this weird sense of karma. They really believe more in karma than in Christ. And they'll say, well, these good things are happening, so God must be out to get me pretty soon. The, the hammer's going to come down. Too many good things have been happening, so a bad thing's going to happen. That's not believing in Christ. That's believing in karma. And people have often asked me as we've gone through the book of Matthew, you know, they'll say, you know, I've read this several times, but I never saw this part that you talked about today. I never saw this, this word. And I want to close with a spiritual exercise I want to invite you to participate in. One of the ways that I've found helpful in, in trying to get rid of the false beliefs, and I have them too, we all have some, false beliefs to find what the truth is, is to try and read the Scripture without the assumption of you already knowing what it says. Because a lot of times, if you've been a believer for a while, and you've read the Bible, or you've read certain parts of the Bible again and again, you start to just read words, and you kind of in your brain go, I already know what this means, I already know what this says, and you just kind of flip through it. A good spiritual exercise, and this takes some, some discipline, and it's hard to do, is to try and just sort of set aside everything you think you know. And read the scripture as if you're reading it for the very first time. And just as you're reading it, take out of your mind what you think you already know about Jesus, what you already know about salvation, what you already know about grace, and just read it. And you'll be surprised what you find in it. You'll be surprised what it actually says, which goes against something that maybe you grew up believing. Oftentimes I have people in our congregation here because a lot of folks come from backgrounds where the saints are kind of these superhuman uh, believers. They're surprised when I tell them, according to the scripture, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. You are the saints. Because saint means you've been sanctified by Christ. You've been made holy by Christ. You're the saints. You're a saint. Now, I'm not a saint. Mary's a saint. Jude is a saint. I'm not a saint. No, the Catholic Church told you that Mary was a saint and Jude was a saint. They made this difference, but the truth is, according to the word, you are a saint if you are sanctified in Christ. You are the holy people of Christ. You. So read the Scripture. Read the Scripture with just without a preconceived notion. In it. And I want to I give you a, a, a homework assignment. I want you to read the letter of Colossians, which Paul wrote. The letter of Colossians. And, and when you read it, kind of make con a conscious effort to set aside what you think you already know. And in fact, you can pray it, because God's in this too. He wants you to understand him better. If you say, Lord, just kind of set aside. Not, you know, you're not praying to lose your salvation. You're praying to set aside your preconceived notions. And Lord, let me see what's in this letter. And read the letter of Colossians as if you'd never heard of Jesus before. And if you've never heard of salvation before. And let the letter of Colossians teach you. And I think you will find it a very enriching experience. Because there's a lot there that most of the brothers and sisters that I've spoken to are completely unaware of. So do that. Take that. That's, your, that's a spiritual exercise. Set aside your preconceived notions. Read the letter of Colossians and see what it tells you about Jesus. And you can even write it down. Write down. It says this about Jesus. It says this about salvation. It says this. And then just sum that up when you're done. And I think you'll find it a very enriching exercise. And again, if you come from a church background, as I know many of you do, where you have a lot of things attached to it, you know, tradition, rituals, expectations, extra-biblical teachings, you need to just let some of that go. You probably need to let it all go 
And it's hard because sometimes you feel like you're betraying your, your background, you're betraying, your heres- you're, you're betraying the legacy your parents gave you, you're being a heretic in some way, but you're not. You're just exploring and finding Christ. And if you're also someone that's enamored with a particular theology, a particular philosophy of theology, which is super easy to do, you know, you kind of get into this idea, this philosophy, let it go and let the Bible speak to you. Anything that ends with ism, at the end of it, is kind of dangerous. You need to be careful. If it has an ism at the end of it, just know that this is like handling dynamite. And it's easy to be enamored and fall in love with the philosophical isms and the theological isms that are out there. Keep your eyes on Christ. Know him through the Bible. Know him through his spirit. Know him through his church. And in this, you will know peace. From now into eternity, and you will be a faithful carrier or bearer of the legacy of Christ into the next generation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you teach us in your word. And Lord, we pray that you would guide us in knowing you, loving you, being closer to you, being shaped by you. And Father, as we go through times of, of uh, wanting those signs and times of just knowing that you're there with us, Help us to remember that you don't change with a sign. You don't change with a feeling. You are who you are. You always have been. You always will be. So help us to center on you instead of on ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.